It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, August 7th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Senate Democrats are plowing through major legislation ahead of November midterms, in many cases with some Republican support. It was pretty amazing. And then they finally passed the bill with, you know, more than 80 votes in the Senate. And it was a big primary night this past week. A push to pass tougher abortion restrictions failed in Kansas, and candidates backed by former President Trump won key races. But how will they do in the fall? I think you still don't really want to be on the wrong side of Trump in these primaries, even though there are there are certain candidates who are able to uh, overcome it. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, Senate Democrats pushed key pieces of legislation through or announced they'd reached a deal among themselves on legislation, like the spending bill, which they call the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a very, very, very big deal. But when Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was pushed on whether this was the time for a nearly $740 billion spending bill, given inflation, he pushed back. You're cutting prescription drug costs, we're cutting energy costs, and we are, we are actually increasing Uh, We're spending $300 billion on reducing the deficit. So it's plain as it's on, it's as plain as the nose on your face that this will reduce inflation. Republicans like South Dakota Senator John Thune disagreed to say the least. If you're worried about inflation, if you're worried about gas prices, if you're worried about uh, the economy generally, uh, I think this is a just a, a really bad bill. But some Republicans did sign on to the CHIPS Act, which includes spending billions in an effort to incentivize chip or semiconductor manufacturing here in the U.S. When asked a couple of weeks ago about the price tag, Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said it's a national security issue. Making sure we have uh, uh, adequate supply here at home of things that are absolutely indispensable. Uh, I wish that were inexpensive, but in this particular situation, it's not. And then after a lot of back and forth and emotional press conferences, the PACT Act passed. The promise to address Comprehensive Toxics Act, which is meant to reduce the burden of proof for service members and veterans who were exposed to chemicals from burn pits while fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. It appeared to be full steam ahead, but then some Republicans in the Senate had an issue with some of the spending and stopped the act in its tracks. The issue was resolved and the bill has now moved forward. There was a technical change they had to make to the bill. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. You have bills that can start in the House and bills that can start in the Senate. And this bill, because it is a revenue-related bill in the Constitution, it says it has to start in the House. And sometimes what they do is they take a House bill and wipe out everything in it and then actually technically start in the Senate, you know, just so long as that bill kind of started in the House. That's the way they get around this. But they had what they call here on Capitol Hill a blue slip issue because it did not comport with the Constitution. So they had to go back and do it again. And this is where you had these Republican senators, Ted Cruz, uh, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, saying, wait a minute, you're, you're moving how the money is being spent here. Now, there's two types of spending in Washington. There is something called discretionary spending, and there's something called mandatory spending. And so mandatory is something that's already on automatic pilot. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Congress passed 
laws years ago that said, okay, we're going to spend this no matter what. We don't allocate for this each year. And that's essentially what they wanted, at least people like Toomey and, and Cruz and others wanted this, so that this bill could not be, be, any of this money could be moved around. So if you put some of it on the discretionary side of the ledger, then they say, wait a minute, they may not get all of this money. It might be used for other things. And oh. so when they went back to try to retool this bill, you have to overcome a filibuster. You need 60 yeas. And suddenly the, the number dropped down to the mid-50s, and so the bill was stuck. And that's what lit up John Stewart and many Democrats. And frankly, a lot of Republicans uh, felt that they looked like they had egg on their faces. Some people thought that this was kind of a retaliation vote uh, to Democrats as soon as they passed the, the, the bill for chips and semiconductors uh, right. to go back back and say, oh, we're going to you know, deal with this deal uh, for, uh, uh, for reconciliation, the so-called Mansion Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. And so some people thought that this was really just uh, you know, political dirty pool by the Republicans. John Stewart, as you say, conducted one of the most profane news conferences I have ever heard on the Capitol grounds, and he later <laughs> apologized because he was just seething mad. I mean, steam was coming out of his ears. It was pretty amazing. And then they finally passed the bill with you know, more than 80 votes in the Senate. And so that money then, it, it wasn't like a pork situation. I know Ted Cruz was saying that this money could have been, was just a pork situation, but is that not really the right word to use? It's discretionary. I, I got to tell you, know, this is always in the eye of the beholder. And, and I went through, you know, the, the new bill and the old bill, and, and there was such a minimal correction. Sometimes they do up here what they call uh. corrections bills, where they, they, they do make a technical change or something. You know, and this is where, you know, in politics, it's hard to discern. You know, you know, we're in this this kind of post factual world now, where people sometimes on both sides, you know, say virtually anything, and we're expected to believe it. You know, you know, the sky is red. Well, no, the sky is blue. And so, how do, how do I prove it? Well, I I don't know enough about the color wheel. I, I I know what blue is. I know what red is. But but I can't I can't give you the chromatic description as to why that constitutes blue and why that constitutes red. And that's what I was trying to do with this bill. And I'm like, I don't really see it in here, frankly, when I would compare the two bills one on one. Got it. Um, there is some worry that it's going to take a little bit of time before that actually takes effect, though, right? I mean, all, that's what happens with a, a lot of legislation, right? It takes a, Sometimes it takes a minute. Uh, I know there was some concern expressed about when this could actually, uh, when veterans could actually see the benefits of this. Absolutely. And this is why Dennis McDonough, the VA secretary, said, you know, we're going to implement this as soon as possible. Um, you know, he was very adamant about that. We also have the CHIPS Act that passed. Um, Chad, we, we all learned during the pandemic, right, how critical obtaining semiconductor chips are for our economy, our cars, so many electronics. And at one point this summer, Intel CEO, um, the, the head of Intel said, if, if this CHIPS bill does not pass, I might not expand my semiconductor plants in Cleveland, Ohio. And he was talking about Europe. And then it passed. I think it was, I don't know, it might have been you who asked Minority Leader McConnell about the expense here. And then he, he responded, well, this is a national security issue. A lot of Republicans did end up signing on to this, right? Well, you know, I asked Leader McConnell that, absolutely, because, you know, he was hearing from a lot of members of his conference that it was an awful lot of money to spend. And he said, you know, I don't want to have to spend this money, but because of national security, and sometimes you have to spend because of that. You know, if, if you're going to be relying on our military and they're going to put chips that are made in China in, you know, fighter jets and missile systems or whatever else, you know, figure out your nefarious plot there, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, so that's the first thing. 
I also asked Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, you know, who, who, you know, he contended that this bill would not generate jobs. And I said, how? And he and, and he also said it wasn't bipartisan, never mind that there were 24 Republicans in the House of Representatives, which is not a small block. It's not gigantic, but it's not, you know, two or three. I mean, I've been around here where they've had one person on the other side of the aisle on both sides say, oh, it's a bipartisan bill. <laughs> and that's, you know, so 24 is not, you know, one or two. And and he, he, he right. denied that it was 24. Uh, so that was pretty remarkable or denied that 24 constituted uh, bipartisan. You know, Roger Marshall Republican senator from Kansas, he just talked about this. And, and he said, you know, I, I think that it's important, but it's a lot of money. And it's also a lot of money for one industry. And this is where, you know, when you start talking about the parochial interests of mm-hmm. each senator in their states or in their districts, congressmen and congresswomen in their states and districts, that they might say, well, why doesn't my industry get this? You know, I have all these people there. And so the people who, you know, would benefit from the chips industry, they're going to love this. And and the lawmakers, you know, who represent those states and districts, they're going to love it. Others, probably not. The Chips Act and the discussion surrounding it really highlighted our reliance on on Taiwan for at least almost all of our higher end chips. Um, Speaker Pelosi, as we all know, went to Taiwan this past week. China reacted pretty dramatically. Um, But in the background of all of that, we know that Speaker Pelosi has been criticized over, I don't know, delays maybe is the best word, in, in proposing a ban on lawmakers participating in stock trading as her husband closed out his call options on NVIDIA, which is a chip-making company. Um, and that happened before the CHIPS Act passed. What did you hear about yeah. all of this, Chad? Well, there's going to be at some point a vote, and she's committed to that in the House of Representatives, kind of tightening up uh, uh, stock trading uh, or or putting things in blind trust for members, their spouses, and also for, uh, uh, you know, chiefs of staff or certain high-level staff around here. This has been an issue for a while now. One of the, the questions, they have something here that was passed in Congress about a decade ago called the Stock Act which basically said you can't use, quote, insider information that you get here on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, to apply to your stock trades. Now, that's kind of vague, because if you have somebody who their job is, you know, they are a legislative director, they've worked on the Hill for a while, they kind of understand this bill is probably going to come up, this bill is not, you know, is that using insider information or is that just using your job? You're not even involved in the particular issue. You just know the the general uh, dynamics of the building and what's going to you know pass and what's going to fail because that's your day job. Uh, you know, how do you use that? And so some people think, well, maybe we should tighten that up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else, it's good public relations. Um You know, again, I asked Kevin McCarthy, who was critical of Speaker Pelosi, saying, I can't believe that he does not talk to, uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi does not talk uh, with her spouse about legislation back home. And I asked him, I said, can you will you commit, you know, right now, say, if you become speaker in 2023, will you not discuss legislation with your spouse? And he would not do that. Interesting. Interesting. Let's talk about the spending bill. We got a statement heading into the weekend from Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema saying she is on board uh, with what they are calling the Inflation Reduction Act. And that happened after West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said he was on board. We knew with like the earlier discussions about the, the broader Build Back Better thing that, that cinema had been concerned about corporate taxes, but um, this carried interest tax that would have raised money on, on that would have raised, I guess, cash on, on money managers. That's being removed uh, for her, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. How is this, and- how, how is this bill relating to climate programs and Medicare, how, if it passes, how are we paying for it? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, you know, 
these ideas of these new taxes and enhanced IRS enforcement. You know, one person's tax increase is another's IRS enhanced enforcement. Uh, you know, so there's going to be you know well over two hundred billion dollars here uh, in in revenue that's coming in from saying, okay, we're we're closing loopholes. And again, what somebody else calls a loophole is something that says, well, this is a legitimate tax shelter. This is a legitimate tax break for my business or industry or whatever. So again, back to the eye of the beholder. But uh, but Cinema was pretty adamant about this, and and you know it, it's something it's something. It's kind of interesting on Capitol Hill to watch when you it comes down to one or two members in the House or Senate and they need their vote. A lot of people say, well, why are they being so obstinate, so obstreperous about this? And, and really what it is, that's your opportunity if you are a lawmaker to be able to get something that's really important to you in your state or whatnot. I mean, one right. thing that Cinema asked for is a lot of money for drought mitigation. This is a terrible problem in the American Southwest right now. And so she has scored that. And, and Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, said, yeah, that's going to be in there. So so the issue of the carried interest, which is highly technical, it goes to big, you know, it's basically in the eyes of, of liberal Democrats, uh, a tax break for hedge fund managers and, and big right. investors and so on and so forth. They're not going to deal with that. But in exchange for that, and, and she basically said, I'm not even going to vote to move forward, let alone vote for the bill. So you are stuck if you, that is still in there. Okay, so the Democrats said we can't have that in there, but you got to have something for the progressives. So Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, said what we're going to do is we are going to put an excise tax on stock buybacks. Now, that's going to raise about $74 billion. And what uh, what that does is it prevents, at least from a tax standpoint, it, it, it would discourage firms from right. selling their stock to themselves and then driving the stock higher and not actually funneling money back into their own system to pay their employees or, or buy equipment or, or, or you know, machinery, whatever they need. I mean, Schumer would like to ban them. He called them, right. quote, despicable. So that's one way they're going to raise revenue as well. Yeah, and he said that he and, and Senator Sanders want to actually, like you just said, want to propose legislation to ban stock buybacks. We'll see if that how that goes over. Finally, Chad, seriously, that that I will leave you alone after this. <laughs> it's been a lot of back and forth, but for all of the talk of the president's, you know, poll numbers being low, those in like primaries or now general midterm races distancing themselves from the president, he's gotten a, a lot of his agenda through just just this summer. Um, and, and even if you're not a fan of what he got through, the White House must be feeling pretty good. We're in a very interesting period in politics right now where people get credit for things they don't deserve and then don't get credit for things they do deserve. And, you know, this is where you talk about, you know, for all the talk about a Green New Deal, for all the talk about, you know, left wing policies. Now, granted, you know, those progressives in the House and Senate, they're going to get some of these climate provisions that they want in this bill. We talked about the excise uh, tax on the on the stock buybacks. That's something that the left wants as well. But most of the big ticket items that have passed have been bipartisan. I mean, look at the CHIPS bill. We talked about that. Look at the Veterans bill. Look at the infrastructure bill. Firearms legislation, first yeah. bill in almost 30 years. I mean, this is, this is amazing. But you know what, Jessica? History may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And there was another president around this time had, had a similar problem that Joe Biden did. He had passed a big budget package, a, a, a stimulus package. Um, he had gotten a, a handgun bill through. This was the first background checks bill. You know, there was background checks for handguns. And that was President Bill Clinton. And in August of 1994, they were struggling to get 
this crime bill through, which included an assault weapons ban, and Judiciary Committee Chairman Biden authored that. And they had trouble getting it through at the beginning of the August recess. I always say, beware the Ides of August. Here we are. This is why we're going to be in session this week dealing with this reconciliation bill. And so Bill Clinton had passed. I mean, he was on a roll, had passed NAFTA. And what happened in the midterms in 1994? They got shellacked. The Democrats lost control of the House for the first time in 40 years, and the Senate flipped. Now, sometimes what happens is you have put yourself on the line and passed those big bills, and it doesn't go over too hot. That was one of many factors. Redistricting was a factor that's certainly a factor this time. But Bill Clinton did not get credit for doing all those things, politically, at least in the 1994 midterm elections. And one can argue that at least the way the tea leaves look right now, that if we stare down at, at, the, at the midterms this November, maybe Bill Clinton, maybe, uh, I'm sorry, President Biden doesn't get credit as well. But when you look at a 50-50 Senate and a very narrow three to six seat majority that Democrats have in the House of Representatives, most of the big stuff that passes, it's bipartisan. And because that reflects the makeup in the House and Senate, it's almost a divided country. It is almost a divided House and Senate. But again, don't expect that to pay political dividends in the midterms necessarily. We'll see. We'll see. Chad Pergram, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. August is chock full of primary Tuesdays, and this Tuesday there are races in Connecticut, Vermont, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. The following week there are primaries in Alaska and Wyoming. In Alaska, it's not just a primary. There's a race to see who will represent the late Congressman Don Young's district, and former Governor Sarah Palin leads the pack there. In Wyoming, Congresswoman Liz Cheney told Fox News Sunday recently she's prepared to lose her Republican primary over her decision to participate in the January 6th Congressional Select Committee. Given the choice between maintaining my seat in the House of Representatives on the one hand or ensuring the survival of our constitutional republic and ensuring the American people know the truth about Donald Trump, I will choose the Constitution and the truth every day of the week and and twice on Sunday. Last week's primaries kicked off the month with races in five states, including the purple state of Arizona, where Democratic incumbent Senator Mark Kelly is considered vulnerable. And the candidate endorsed by former President Trump, Blake Masters, won the Republican Senate primary. Thank you for your hard work and through your support, for making me your Republican nominee for the United States Senate. Thank you. In Missouri, some Republicans worried former Governor Eric Greitens would be the nominee after several weeks of high poll numbers. But after Trump endorsed simply Eric in the primaries, meaning both Greitens and Attorney General Eric Schmidt, Schmidt, who'd started to lead in polling anyway, pulled it out. Tonight, the Republican voters of Missouri have spoken, and I am honored to be your nominee for the United States Senate. In the state of Kansas, a red state that went for Trump over President Biden by nearly 15 points, an amendment to remove abortion protections from the Constitution failed. If it had passed, it would have given the Republican-led legislature the ability to pass new restrictions. The legislature actually put this on the ballot in hopes that the voters would essentially kind of push back against the, the, the Kansas Supreme Court's interpretation of the state constitution. 
Kyle Kondik is the managing editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. You know, you're, you're probably going to see a ballot issue like this in Michigan this November. You're probably going to see it in other states. Uh, you, you will see it in other states this fall, but but also going forward here. Um, so that that to me was notable, of course, since, um, you know, the, the, the Dobbs decision doing away with Roe v. Wade. I mean, you know, it's one of the biggest Supreme Court decisions of all time. Uh, or at least of our lifetimes. And so uh, on an issue that many people feel very passionately about, on an issue that I think public opinion can be kind of mixed on, but is generally more on sort of the pro-choice side. Uh, and I think the results in Kansas kind of reflected that. So to me, that was the biggest deal, even though we're talking about primaries and it wasn't actually a really a primary election. Yeah, Kyle, does it matter for November when, as Republicans run and Democrats, uh, we see the polling, they're more, more motivated by things like that, right? They're more motivated after Roe. Um, we've seen that polling. We've seen some counter polling as well that maybe they're not as motiv- motivated to vote. But uh, that, I don't know if that's an outlier, that Washington Post poll. But when you see that, as you called it, a center-right state voted the way they did on abortion, do other politicians in other places note that? Does it matter? Or does it really just depend on what state you're in, what, what district you are in? Uh, I think that you know people on both sides of the aisle should take notice of it. Um, I think particularly, you know, Republicans have gone, you know, they've gone beyond the sort of traditional Republican positioning on abortion that, that you know, that don't support abortion but do support certain ex- exceptions for abortion. I think many Republicans have gone further than that, uh, you know, not having exceptions for rape and incest and even the health of the mother. Um, and those positions are just can be hard to defend, I think. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, I think Republicans would like to, you know, ask Democrats, you know, what limits do they support on abortion? Because the the public generally does support at least some limits on abortion and, um, Democrats have gone further left than, you know, the old Bill Clinton construction, safe, legal, and rare on, on abortion. So that's a fair point too. But, um, I think Republicans are more under the gun on the issue just because there has been a change to the status quo on abortion. And there used to be a court decision that uh, that had pretty pretty uh, strong that effectively created pretty strong federal protections for abortion rights and now there aren't any federal protections for um, for abortion rights so that's that's an important thing that's developed in American politics that we have to take account for even though voters still um, say that the biggest issues to them are things like economy and, and inflation which are issues that are I think frankly good for Republicans in this environment and bad for Democrats. Let's talk about some of the Republican races from Tuesday. Attorney General Eric Schmidt won the Missouri Senate primary, uh, and we know Trump backed both uh, Schmidt and former Governor Eric Greitens. Uh, I guess he he has quite a bit of personal baggage and some scandals in his background. Blake Masters won the Republican Senate primary in Arizona, but it was very tight between the candidate Trump backed for governor, Carrie Lake, and the candidate former Vice President Pence backed, Karen Taylor Robeson. And then there was Congressman Peter Meyer in Michigan. I, I know he lost, but it was very narrow, right? It was between him and the guy that Trump also backed, John Gibbs. What do, what do you take away from some of the outcomes in the, and the tensions that we saw in some of these Republican races? Uh, well, first thing, I mean, I think a, a lot of national Republicans are breathing a sigh of relief that Eric Greitens did not win the Missouri Senate race. Missouri, of course, has become a pretty Republican-leaning state in recent years. But Eric Greitens had so much baggage, the former governor there who had to, who had to resign basically in disgrace, that uh, Republicans were worried they'd have to spend money to defend Missouri um, if Greitens was the nominee. He's not going to be the nominee, so that's a, 
Um, that's a seat that I, I don't think Republicans are going to have to worry about in the Senate. Um, you know, I think that broadly speaking, and particularly in Arizona, you saw um, a lot of folks who, you know, backed President Trump's uh, unfounded complaints about the 2020 election. Um, Blake Masters, the Senate nominee, is like that. Carrie Lake, if in fact she wins the gubernatorial nomination, is also like that. And there were some other down ballot candidates who, who were aligned with Trump on that. Uh, you know, again, you, 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 I think you still don't really want to be on the wrong side of Trump in these primaries, even though there are there are certain candidates who are able to uh, overcome it. The Michigan three primary was really interesting because you did have Peter Meyer, who, you know, is basically a, kind of a mainstream Republican, but he did support um, impeachment um, basically right out. My, Meyer's just in his first term, right? You know, right after he he initially got into office, he voted for impeachment. And that, I think, was just too, too big of a sin for Republican voters. You, know, you also saw. Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee come in in support of, effectively in support of of, uh, of John Gibbs, the more conservative candidate, because they feel like Gibbs is more beatable in the fall. And they're, and they're not wrong about that. It's just that hmm. I think Gibbs could end up winning this race anyway. So and I think there were some, you know, some Democrats and, and certainly some Republicans who were upset about that. But, but that's been a big theme of this election cycle is that Democratic groups have been yeah. basically trying to pick, pick their opponents in a lot of different Republican primaries, sometimes um, in ways that I think will be politically successful and, and sometimes maybe not. Yeah, that was actually fun, funny enough. That was my next question. You know, the, the Democratic meddling in, in the Republican primaries this cycle spent millions of dollars, to, you know, in certain races. It seems to have some mixed results, though maybe slightly more successful than not. As they, I guess, the like you said, the seeming goal, right, is to highlight the the more Trumpian candidate, believing that person will be easier to beat. Is this going to be part of, of a playbook moving forward, if it appears to work, maybe even on, on both sides? And if it is, do people, does that start getting confusing? You know, do voters start saying, Wait, who just paid for that ad? What, who's saying what about who now? Um, you know, the, the, the most famous example of this sort of activity was 10 years ago when Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill was running for a second term and she um, played in the Republican primary to elevate Todd Akin, a Republican House member who later kind of kind of blew up his campaign with some, uh, um, um, you know, frankly, kind of kind of stupid comments um, that ended up allowing McCaskill to, uh, to to easily win re-election. Of course, McCaskill would go on to lose to, to Josh Hawley in, uh, in the 2018 election. But um, since then, you, you've seen more and more of this kind of activity. Certainly this cycle has been very heavily, uh, you know, Democrats playing in Republican primaries, not really Republicans playing in, in Democratic primaries. I also think that because there's so much money kind of floating out there in the political system, the these big out there, they're you know you you basically have several different kind of official or unofficial party campaign committees for for you know for both parties um, for you know House races, Senate races, gubernatorial races, and there's in, in some instances essentially unlimited uh, you know uh, amounts of do donations that a single yeah. person can make race or in, to a, to a group that. There's just a lot of money sloshing around. And when there's a lot of money sloshing around, you got to find ways to spend it. And one way to do that is instead of saving all of your money for, you know, ads in August, September and October in the general, well, maybe you spend a little bit of money in the primary as a way to, to not have to spend more money in the general if you, if ah. you 
ended up helping a, a weak, you know, a candidate you perceive as weak. Thing is, though, is that sometimes those candidates end up winning. I mean, I'd say Donald Trump himself was a great example of that. In that, I think there were plenty of Democrats who, you know, wanted Hillary Clinton to run against Trump in 2016. Now, I don't think the Democrats actually spent money on Trump's behalf, but I don't think that they were necessarily upset that Trump got the nomination. Right. And then, of course, you know, that Trump ended up winning. So, um, you know, sometimes you, you, you get what you hope you get what you wish for in terms of, a, of an opponent, but then you end up losing to that person. So um, I do think it's, it's inherently kind of risky. And I think it, I think particularly in the instance of Peter Meyer, it's probably more trouble than it was worth on the Democratic side. But again, I I understand I understand the impulse and and look, I mean, even though I think a lot of people were turned off by that, you know, this is politics like and and I think if you're a Democrat, you could also look at it and say, well, if Republican voters are really so interested in voting for these extreme candidates that we think we can beat, well, let's help them do that. So that helps us maximize our seat total. And, and again, it's a you know, it is a cutthroat business. And I sort of I sort of understand that impulse. It's just mm-hmm. that they may not necessarily be right about that, although even if. John Gibbs, this conservative candidate, ends up winning. That district, I think, is pretty clearly trending Democratic. Yeah. Joe Biden won it by nine points. And so I think it'd probably, probably be really hard for Republicans to hold it in a presidential year, but it wouldn't be hard for them to hold it if Peter Meyer was the incumbent, because had Meyer won the primary, I suspect he would have generated a small but important amount of crossover support from Democrats based on his impeachment vote. Yeah, or even just moderates and independents, you know, the, the, or right. somebody in the suburbs, right? Let's look ahead, Kyle. Uh, the polls indicate she's about to lose, but is Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney about to be out of a job? It sure seems that way. Uh, and look, I mean, if Peter Meyer gets punished in a kind of a, you know, in, in a much more competitive uh, congressional district, and frankly, a congressional district that a lot of places that were skeptical of Trump in, in, in 2016, I mean, Trump did not do well in Grand Rapids area in Western Michigan. That's where that district is. But in a state like Wyoming with a, you know, blood red state with a very conservative primary electorate, um, you know, there's there's not much of a constituency for Cheney kind of effectively taking sides against the, against not just Trump, but also the party and um, being a major participant in the January 6th committee. And look, I think there are a lot of people who believe that what Cheney has done is important and honorable. And I, you know, I think there's a good argument for that. But at the same time, if you're a conservative Republican and doesn't like this spotlight being shown on th- thrown on Trump in the in the committee hearings and feels like Cheney is just kind of there to antagonize Republicans, again, I, I personally think that's unfair, but a lot of people probably feel that way, including a lot of primary voters in Wyoming. Um, you know, then that's a, that's an argument to uh, you know to, to vote against her. So all of the indications are that Cheney is in very deep trouble in her in her upcoming primary. Let's talk about Alaska. They're they're also having a race on that same day, and it involves a congressional seat. Sarah Palin's running for it, right? She, if I'm correct, she came out on top among four total candidates selected to move on in the ranked choice primary, and that happened in June. And then we'll find out August 16th if. If Palin's the winner, yeah, that's right. So it's it's a very unusual electoral system that they have out in Alaska now. By a fairly slim vote in a in a statewide ballot issue, the state switched to this top four primary system or, or election system. So what happens is that in the primary, all the candidates run together, and the top four finishers advance to the general election. And so in this instance, you had former Governor VP nominee Sarah Palin. 
Nick Begich, who is um, uh, he's actually uh, his his last name Begich is very famous yeah. in in Alaska, but it's famous for being a Democratic family. Right. But but he is he is a Republican. And so he was his sort of the the kind of Republican alternative to Palin. And then there's a, a former state legislature named Mary Paltola, who's a uh, Democrat. And uh, and actually, there, there was supposed to be a fourth candidate, but that candidate dropped out. So there's only ah. three. Uh, so the, the, the first big test of the top four is actually a top three election. Mm. So what will happen is that people will cast their votes and they'll rank the they'll rank their choices. And whoever gets the fewest number of votes will be eliminated. And then the second place votes cast for that candidate will be used to determine whether, you know, whoever, whoever the winner ends up being. And, you know, I'm expecting this to be a Republican hold, um, yeah. with, you know, Palin and Baggage is the likeliest winners. And I think it's I think it's uh, it, 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 it's close to competitive. But after the aughts, did you uh, did you have Sarah Palin making a political comeback on your bingo card? <laughs> I mean, not for a U.S. House seat. You know, I could have imagined yeah. her running president at some point or maybe trying to run run statewide i mean i guess in, in alaska a house seat is a statewide race because there's only one house seat there's just not that many people in alaska but you know going from being a vp nominee to later running for a house seat it's pretty unusual historically you know for for a losing vp candidate so um i was pretty surprised when she decided to run but uh you know she she may very well end up uh, end up in in congress kyle condit right. thank you so much for your time Thank you. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, we keep an eye on President Biden's trip to flood-ravaged eastern Kentucky and wait for him to sign the CHIPS Act and the burn pit legislation for veterans. For all of us here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.